if you want to find 1 Peter in your Bible, which is what we've been working through over the last, well, since Christmas, um, and I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Don't worry if you can't find it because it will appear just like that. And someone's, uh, someone's sent, stop sending me messages, people. Okay, you can go away now. Uh, right, here we go. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and Gentile, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we can gather on this Palm Sunday, this week before we celebrate Easter and your life, death, and resurrection. And we know on, on Palm Sunday, the, the crowds uh, cheered. There was this joyful, triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem with everybody praising you and saying, here he is, here's the one, here's the Messiah. And yet just a week later, that same crowd, the same city were, were literally bang for your blood, were saying, crucify him, crucify him. It seemed like everybody had turned their backs on you and you endured the most brutal suffering, torture and death. And you did it all for us, Jesus. You've taken our punishment, you bore the wrath, you stood in our place. And we can just know wonderful, beautiful forgiveness, freedom, new life in you, Jesus. And as those that have found this profound, wonderful new life in you, we want to live out the consequences of that in our life. Not because we have to, to try and earn something or win something, because we can't earn anything anymore because you've given it all for us. But just now, because we, we want to, we want to live for you because you've done this amazing thing in our hearts. You've put the Holy Spirit in us to help us to follow you. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you will be at work in our hearts, opening our the eyes of our heart, opening our souls to see you more clearly and to help us to follow you. Amen. Amen. This morning, um, because the weather is getting slightly warmer, instead of the last few months, we've been getting to church by going on the tram um, or by train or combination of the two. And we decided this morning that we would cycle. And uh, Joe and I both cycled with with some kids on each of our bikes together. And the um, thing is, both Joe and I, we're quite, we're quite competitive. 
So what happened is what started off with just the two of us cycling together, without anybody saying anything, it became a race. And no one said, let's race. We just started instinctively. There's something within us that just had to race. And it got quite competitive to the point where somebody may have cycled through a red light. I don't know who that was. Someone else may have kind of pulled out in front of a taxi. Again, I don't know who would have done that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the lesson of that story is that despite me maybe breaking a few minor traffic laws, I still lost. So there you go. But um, the, point, <laughs> the point about that, that story is, uh, it's, although I lost, to understand why I lost, you have to understand the context of the story. And sometimes when we're reading the Bible, to understand what the passage is saying, we have to understand the context around it. And the context of my bike story was that I had our backfeed sale cargo bike with three children on it, one, two, three, and Joe just had one on her bike. So now you can understand, oh, I understand why he lost now. So does that make sense? Is everyone now on my team? Good, good, okay. Okay, we'll give you another report next week. We'll see who wins for Easter. But uh, it's a bit of a silly story, but the point as I'm, I'm trying to make there is, as I said, you sometimes have to understand the context of what's, of what's going on in, in the Bible, of what's going on behind these stories, of who Peter was writing to and what it would have meant for them as well as what it means for us. And if you perhaps uh, had grown up in a, in a town very different from Amsterdam, you would have experienced Christianity and faith and belief in a very different way. So there's a town called uh, Barneveld, which is in the east of the Netherlands. It's about an hour from, from here. Um, some of you may even come from there yourself. Uh, and it's kind of in the middle of, of what people would call the Dutch Bible Belt. You might think, I didn't know the Netherlands had a Bible Belt but it does, and it's a very small town. There's about 30,000 people that live there, but it has many, many churches. One church which has 3,000 people in it. This isn't a town that just has 30,000 people in it. It's got many other churches as well. Um, and if you lived in a place like that, maybe that sounds familiar to you. The town where you came from sounds a little bit like that. And that would mean you would probably have Christians in your, in your class at school maybe even ones that went to the same church as you, um, or you, would, you maybe work with other believers, or you may uh, have Christians who live on your street. You know, if you wanted, you could probably have a Christian hairdresser and a Christian mechanic and a Christian accountant. You could surround your entire life with, with other believers. And yet, when you come to a city like Amsterdam, you suddenly find yourself in a different world. Whereas here, only one or two percent of people would, would, would go to church that you probably noticed where you live and with your friends and where you go to work, that the vast majority of people, not only do they not believe in Jesus, maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus. You're very welcome. We're so glad you're here. But you will probably find that not only do they not believe in Jesus, but they may have never even met a Christian or at least one who is open and public about their faith. They, they might not really know that Christians still exist. <laughs> I remember talking to one of the mums at the kids' school 
And she asked me, oh, so you're, you're English. What are you doing in Amsterdam? Why do you live here? And I explained, oh, well, we, we moved here to, to start a church. You know, that's, that's my job. I'm a church pastor. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, no, no, honestly, I am. And she said, no, no, you can't be. But people don't do that anymore. And she was serious. People don't start churches. People close churches. She just couldn't quite believe that that's what, that's what I did. There was a survey that came out this week uh, talking about the state of Christian, Christianity in Europe. Um, and it said that in the Netherlands, over 60% of young people, so those in their teenage years and in their 20s, 60% of them have never been to a church service at all, never walked into a building like this, into a service like this. They've just never done it. And that's the reality of the world around us. In, in Amsterdam, that's going to be much more profound. The statistics will be much, much higher of people who've never been to a church service, never really met a Christian, never opened a Bible, never prayed. And that's the world that we live in. Someone was commenting on this, these statistics that came out this week a guy called Stephen Bullivant, who's a sociologist, he said Christianity as a, as a default, as a norm, something that's normal, is gone. And he said it's probably gone for good, or at least for the next 100 years. And that means for us, we need to understand the context in which we live. And also when we read this passage, the context to which Peter is, is writing to. A lady called Bethany Jenkins, who worked for the US government, she said this, I don't know if you can see that, let me move out of the way. Being a Christian in these types of circumstances, certain cities, certain industries, and certain roles, is a bit like being an, an exile in in Babylon. And what she's saying is that in, in the Old Testament, the people of God were exiled from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and sent to Babylon, which was a city where, a secular city basically, I guess an equivalent of a city like this. They were sent from a very uh, Jewish place where God was worshipped to somewhere where he wasn't at all. And that's kind of the same as what's happened to us. And that's the same as what's happened again in the New Testament, that Peter's writing to these believers that would have been in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, which was the center, the hub of where the first Christians first worshiped, where the first churches were started, where belief in Jesus was first born, and then they were exiled out. And he writes this letter to those that have been sent, that have had to go, that have had to disappear and moved to cities where people didn't believe in God at all. They're exiles in these places, and we're the same. Talks in 1 Peter about us being a bit like aliens or strangers to the world around us. And yet often we can make the mistake of, as Christians, of, of thinking like we're still effectively in Jerusalem, or we're in our nice, Christian, comfortable place, and forgetting that we're not at all, that we live in a very different city than that, that we're in a very different context. And when we discover, when we suddenly realize, oh goodness, people don't 
think the same way that I think. They don't believe the things that I believe. In fact, sometimes they believe the complete opposite. Sometimes they, they don't like Christians at all. The effect that can sometimes have on us is to make us hide away and to kind of disconnect. And, and we kind of create two different personas of ourselves. You know, the same way that we do on social media. There's, there's the version of you that's on Instagram, on Facebook, and then there's the real version of you. They, most of the time, they're different people. We could do the same as, as Christians. There can be the version of you that's here on a Sunday, and there's the version of you tomorrow morning when you get up to go to your work or to your college or whatever you do tomorrow. There can be different people living very different lives, but yet we're the same person. And what we have to remember is that this faith that we believe, this message, the gospel, Jesus Christ, it affects everything. It affects everything. It has implications which should affect every aspect of our lives, of how we use all of our life as worship to God. It should affect all of that. And that's what I'm talking about this morning, how our, our faith as exiles and what we do, particularly what we do in a kind of a work context in your career and what you do, can, how those can interact. But you might be a bit confused because you might think, well, this passage doesn't seem to be talking about that. In fact, you might be thinking, hold on a second. He actually mentions at the start, he says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Um, that, and you might think, hold on a second, is he talking about slaves? What, what's this about? And that's an important question for us to address. I don't want to just kind of gloss over that and pretend that's not there. Because you might think of the God of the Bible as a cold, harsh dictator if he exists at all, that's, my, that's what you might think. You might think that the Bible is kind of oblivious to real world issues, what's actually going on around us, that it doesn't really speak into our life today. You might even think or have heard that the Bible somehow condones or in, encourages slavery. Some people will say that about the Bible. And I want to say a couple of things in response to that. First of all, when Peter here, when he's writing to, to servants, the best way to describe that would be to, to kind of household servants, so people that are working in a home, serving a family. And that's, that's very different from the definition of slavery that we would understand today or in the last couple of hundred years in Europe and the Americas. Because this kind of slavery that Peter's writing to would have often, it would have been paid work. Often they would have had the opportunity to work for their for their freedom. Many of them would have become part of the family that they were serving themselves. Many of them were born into it. They weren't brought or acquired. Um, and when it comes to the sort of slavery we, that we see today, human trafficking, then the Bible clearly condemns that. It talks about in 1 Timothy how we shouldn't enslave people but yeah, it's, it's a common objection people still have that the Bible uh, somehow encourages slavery. I guess the other thing to say would be that, that those people that fought hard over the last few hundred years to abolish slavery were, were Christians, the vast majority of them. 
Um, and it was their faith that inspired them to do that. Men like William Wilberforce uh, in the UK who, who fought his entire life. His, he gave up his, he put aside all his political ambitions and served in the UK Parliament to bring about the abolition of, of slavery. Uh, Isaac Watts, who wrote the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, was, was actually, a, 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 he, a, he was a captain on a, on a slave ship and God profoundly uh, encountered him as he's on this voyage taking these slaves to America, completely turned his life around. Uh, and over a number of years, uh, God did an amazing work in his heart. He started to fight against slavery and wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And the Bible's position, what the Bible says about human dignity, what it says about equality of people before God, how we're equal before God, what it says about these things completely undermines slavery. It pulls the rug out from beneath its feet. But you could still ask, why does Peter say that servants be subject to your masters? Shouldn't he be calling for an uprising and say, servants overthrow your masters? You could, why doesn't he say that? Well, let me try and explain the context behind that. Because first of all, in, in society at the time, this kind of commonplace slavery to be a household servant or to work in that sort of way was incredibly common. So in Rome in the first century, the same time as this letter was written by Peter, about 85 to 90% of the entire population of Rome were slaves. Can you imagine that? If 90% of our city was, were, were slaves. But that would have been, um, as I said, not people who have been trafficked necessarily, but people that were sometimes teachers or tutors or helping to manage an estate or a household. Sometimes even doctors and nurses were technically, technically slaves. And if Peter and the other New Testament writers, if they'd called for an, for an uprising, for an overthrow, get rid of all these masters now, do it now, then there would have been catastrophe. Imagine if 90% of Rome had all said, right, that's it, it's, it would have been uproar, there would have been chaos. Christianity probably would have been crushed in its infancy. And also we've got to understand that although they don't call for an uprising in that sense, that a revolution has taken place through Jesus and what he's done. And what happens through the gospel, through the message of Jesus, is it does change everything, as I've said. But sometimes it, it, it takes a long time to do that. That Christian influence in society is often like, it's, it, we're supposed to be like yeast in a dough. You just put a tiny bit in and it, it affects the whole, the whole loaf. So what happened was these Christians that Peter's writing to in the first century they started living, living differently. Rather than just being revolutionaries, overthrowing, they decided instead that they were gonna serve, that they were gonna love people, that they were gonna slowly, little by little, undermine the whole fabric of society, and then over generations, over centuries, change comes about. And now you go to Rome, and 90% of the people aren't slaves anymore. And sadly, slaves do still exist in our world, and when we see that, 
We're now in a position where we can say that is absolutely abhorrent and wrong. We should do whatever we can to stand against human trafficking. But also, for most of us, the most... The task right in front of us is to help people to gain freedom from the slavery of sin, the tyranny of sin that's in that. That's how the Bible, that's how Paul in the Bible describes sin as a slavery that has enslaved us. And we need to help people break free from that. That's the, the cause that we should give our lives to. And what Peter does here is he gives us some, some principles that can apply to all of us in how we live, how we live as effectively exiles in a city where the vast majority of people don't believe what we believe. And that will mean you'll find that there'll be times when what you believe, your, your faith, will, will kind of grate against, will be in conflict against what you have to do, your job. And you may even have to suffer sometimes, even, even unjustly, for what, you, for what you believe. Because you could be, you might have had it where you've been overlooked for promotion in your job. Or you've been treated unjustly, unkindly. Maybe you've been mocked for what you believe or discriminated against. Sometimes you might have done good in your job and had to suffer for it. Sometimes it just might be that the whole ethos, the way that your, your, your kind of the context of where you work functions, how people practice their jobs just feels completely opposed to what you believe. I was having a conversation with someone in our church this week who was telling me about how someone else in the church had told them that their, their boss had said to them, that if she was to succeed in her career, she, she'd have to lose some friends. If you want to do well in this career, you're going to have to get rid of some, you have to make some enemies along the way. If you want to get to the top, you're going to have to sometimes not be very nice. And, and she thought, well, I don't want to live like that. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? I don't want to live like that. Someone else in this church was telling me a year or so ago that uh, when they first started their job, they brought all the... He was a, a graduate, he just completed his degree, and they had a number of graduates who all started at this company, and they sat them down together, they brought the big boss guy in, and he said to them, right, this is your life now, this, this career. You don't have any hobbies, you don't have any friends, you don't have any social life. What you do now is this, you need to give your life to it. And again, he felt like, How do, I want to do this job, and I feel God's put me in this place, but I don't want to live like that. And suddenly what we believe can be in, 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 in conflict when we can suddenly find that when we start to say to people, why well, don't I want to live like that, then we get treated unkindly or we get looked down upon or people just don't understand us. So, so how, do we, how should we respond? Well, first of all, we can respond by, you've got to make sure you examine your own hearts in all of this. Because there can be, I've met people who they'll, they'll, they'll go from job to job, from place to place, and they always have bad bosses every time. From company to company, job to job, career to career, city to city, and they always end up with, with a bad boss who treats them unkindly. And you have to kind of ask, 
maybe the problem isn't them, but maybe the problem is you. And that's always the first place that we should look. You know, um, um, it's, who's the problem here? If I'm going from place to place and I'm always getting in trouble, maybe, maybe the common denominator, maybe the, the, the real factor is what's going on in my own heart, in my own life. Am I actually doing good here or am I, am I not doing good? Is there something wrong that I need to examine in myself? And we should do that, look at ourselves. Secondly, we have to realize that what we're called to, how we're called to live Christian service in the workplace is utterly unique. It's unique. It's just so different from the world's values. So it might be easy for us to, you know, if you're treated badly or unjustly or you think something has happened that's unfair, often temptation can be to to then return evil for evil. As in what I mean by that, you think, well, I've been treated, my boss has let me down, that gives me permission to gossip about him behind his back. Or that gives me permission to just not really do that report very well or just be a bit sloppy in how I'm doing my job. But yet when we respond like that, what we're doing is we're kind of enacting our own justice. We're trusting in our solution. We're trusting in our own justice rather than trusting in the justice of God. The biblical model is different. It says that we're to bear evil patiently, that when we see evil, that we're to respond with, with good. Sometimes that's difficult and challenging, but when we do it that way, we, we trust in, in God's justice. We trust in his wisdom. I remember being in a, a context once, working with a team of people. We'd been working on a project together. It hadn't gone, and I put my hand. Um, we'd made some mistakes as a team. We had a meeting together with our boss, and I put my hand up and thought, well, I'll, I'll accept my responsibility. I said, look, I'm sorry. I didn't do this bit very well. I let us down. I thought everyone else would kind of then join in and say, oh, yeah, me too. And <laughs> no one said anything. It just this deathly hush went across this room. I thought, oh, okay, maybe it was all my fault then. I was kind of looking around, come on, come on, someone. And it wasn't. It was just I suddenly became the scapegoat for everything that had gone wrong in that, in that team. And I had a choice then. I could either start pointing fingers and say, well, you were to blame as well. And what, what did you do? And you, you didn't do your bit properly. Or I could just trust in God's justice and say, well, I'm just going to be faithful with what God's called me to do. And I'll, I'll just have to trust him that he'll put the rest of the pieces of the jigsaw together, that he's in control, that actually my reputation doesn't matter, that his reputation is far more, far more important. And also, we, we've got to remember that it says here that this is a, it's a gracious thing which might not make a whole lot of sense to you. It says, but if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a, a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, and that might not make a lot of sense to you, but receiving injustice, something bad happening to you, suffering, can, can be a work of God's grace in your life. If you think of it this way, um, this quote might help you from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says, tribulation, it means by that suffering or injustice, it transforms our doctrine, what we believe, 
into experience, our faith into assured knowledge. When you're in a, a moment of suffering or difficulty, when something's happening in your workplace that feels a challenge and you don't know what to do about it, that's when your faith becomes real, right? It, it stops being a conceptual thing up here. It stops being something you just sing about on a Sunday and it suddenly becomes real. Like, what am I going to do about this? How is this actually going to work out in my life? It becomes real in your life and that's really important. Those moments when suddenly your faith becomes real and you have to put it into action, that's brilliant. That's the grace of God at work. It's a really powerful thing. Because it's helpful for us to remember that when we're in times of suffering, hardship, that could even be the favor of God on you. You might not want to understand it like that, but this is just bad. How can this be the favor of God? But he's calling you deeper into him. He's calling you to stop trusting in how you can engineer the situation, about how you can progress your career, about how you can make things happen for you. He's saying, no, actually, he's shaking the bedrock of your life and saying, trust in me instead. Trust in me. Trust in my favor. Trust in my justice. Trust in the fact that I want good for you. So when that kind of shaking, that suffering comes, that can be a really powerful thing. Also, we must make sure that we are always seeking to overcome evil with good. And Peter's just, he's just teaching us what he's learned from, from Jesus, because this is what Jesus taught him in Luke 6. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Imagine if you took those words and you made that kind of your life manifesto. That, that's how I'm going to live in my workplace. Even when people are evil, I'm going to return that with, with good. I'll, I'll choose to be merciful just as my Father in heaven is merciful. Imagine if that became the way that you lived, the way all of us lived. Imagine if we had a whole army of Christians that were living like that in this city. Imagine what kind of difference that would make. You don't just have to imagine it. We, we can do that. It's an amazing, a powerful thing. And when you, in the midst of suffering, when you show mercy, when you see evil, when you show mercy, what it does is it... it it can break the cycle of evil. When, some, some, when you sit in your office, someone does something bad, so someone responds with something bad. Someone says something unkind, so someone responds like that. Someone gossips, so someone else gossips. And you can see these things spiraling out of control. If you say, well, I'm, I'm going to choose not to join in with that, and I'll return with, with good instead, you can suddenly break that, that cycle. 
you can suddenly put a line in the hand in the sand you can you can stop something from happening because what i love about the bible is it's it's kind of honest about the real world it says this in in proverbs a gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches it says in in a, another translation of the bible that a ruthless man gets, gets riches. And that can often be how we're trained in the business world to function. You have to be ruthless. You have to pursue your goal and your dream with a kind of a sense of violence. I'm gonna, whatever the cost, I'm gonna make it happen because this is my dream. I'll do whatever I can to fulfill it. And the Bible is honest about that. It says, well, they'll get, people like that get rich. <laughs> it's still around you. Some of the richest people on the planet are also some people who aren't particularly nice, if we're really honest about it. But then it, it goes on to say, a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. So they might get rich, but it's a it's a deceptive you're actually living for. It's, it's a deceptive wage. The reward that we're actually living for is much more to be prized, so much more valuable. This is eternal, powerful, beautiful reward. It doesn't deceive us or, or trick us. I was listening to a, an interview this week with a guy called Brian Koppelman. Who's a, who's a, he writes scripts for movies for films like Rounders and Ocean's 13. He wrote the scripts for those things. He's not a Christian, he's an atheist. And uh, an, an interviewer was, was asking him some questions, trying to find out what made this guy tick. And he was saying to him that the other day he'd met uh, someone who invests in startups, uh, in new companies. And this guy who invests in startups always looks for people who have an air of inevitability about their eventual success. People that are just so driven and that are so focused and have this inner confidence that they will just succeed no matter what. And this guy said to him, Brian Copperman, are you like this? Is, is this, to achieve everything you've achieved, to write for all these amazing movies, you must be the same. You must be driven and focused. You must have this inner sense of belief that you were gonna succeed. And his answer I found really profound and helpful because he said, to be honest, I'm really nervous of those messianic tendencies, those, those kind of desires that somehow within you, there's something amazing that's gonna happen. There's this amazing power within me. He said, I don't really wanna think like that because there's a ruthlessness about that which is really damaging. This is someone who isn't a Christian who's saying this. I thought that's such a helpful way to see it that he's understood that you don't have to live like that to achieve what you want to achieve. You don't have to be ruthless. You don't have to, to trample on other people. And it's important that we hear this because some of you, you might not have been told it in your workplace, but just the way that people behave is that this is, the, this is how they live. No matter what, they're gonna to get to the top. And you think, well, I want to get to the top as well. Maybe just even because you feel that God's told you to, that you want to have a wonderful influence for the gospel in that, in that profession. And you think, well, I want to get to the top. Do I have to live like that as well? 
No, you don't. You don't. You can trust that God will make a way for you instead. That he'll open the doors. That he'll make it happen for you. The final thing to say is that when it comes to our faith and our work, that we don't need to to lead with faith. What I mean by that is that sometimes when we think about as believers who want to tell people about Jesus, we can think, okay, for me to sort of be on mission in my where I live, or particularly in my workplace, that means... Um, you know, I need to suddenly wear a T-shirt that says Jesus loves you. Or that at any opportunity, I need to smash people. I'm going to bring this biggest Bible I can find. I'm just going to whack them over the head. As, as an exile in a context like this, you don't have to live like that. In fact, it might actually be better if you don't live in that way. Because I think it's helpful for us to sometimes... Sometimes in contexts like this, you need to kind of die to the idea of seeing tangible progress. You need to die to the idea that, that suddenly your arrival in your office will mean that all of a sudden it's going to be like a domino effect and lives are going to start getting transformed. We can believe that God can do that, but often you will find that witnessing to people who've, who've never opened the Bible who've never been to church, who have been taught by our society, increasingly now, the prevailing worldview is that Christianity isn't just outdated, but Christianity is dangerous. That, that's how people are getting taught now. That's how society is educating people. That the things that we believe are destructive, that are wrong. Some of the positions that we hold are somehow evil. That, that's what our world around us is telling people. I'm serious. When it comes to issues like euthanasia, it comes to issues like abortion, people are saying that what we believe as Christians is fundamentally wrong and is bad and is bad for society. So for you to arrive and suddenly say, hey, everybody, come and believe in Jesus. What's going to really make an impact in people's lives is when they see in your life that it's actually true. That, that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they suddenly see goodness. That, or I don't necessarily agree with what they believe about gender, about sexuality. I don't agree with those things, but yet there's something about their life that is so radically different that it's, it's beautiful. It's, 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 as the Bible says, it's a lamp to the world. It's a light to the world. There's something that can shine out of us. And you'll suddenly find that when people begin to see that, they'll think, oh, I want some of that. A story I often tell is when Joe and I were in, when we first moved to Brighton in the UK, which was um, 2006, the first week we were there, Joe went into like a, a toddler group um, with uh, our oldest was only six months old at the time. We went into this group with these other, other mums, and Joe started getting to know them. A few of them were Christians who went to the same church as us. A few of them weren't. And we, we, we met one lady who said, well, I'm, I'm an atheist, and so is my husband. You know, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, and we just started witnessing to them. 
And, and uh, their, their son, who's the same age as their oldest, he had like, uh, like eczema, like on his skin, really badly. Um, so we, we said to him and some of the other Christians who, who were in this group said to them, well, well, we'll pray for your son that God heals him. We believe that God heals. And, and nothing happened. Um, and then he, 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 when he was about, so a few years later, when he was about four years old, he started going to, to nursery and then to school. And, and the other children were bullying him because he had this eczema, it was on his arms, it was on his face, it was very visible. And his parents, atheists, they didn't know what to do. So they prayed. <laughs> they thought, well, these other people have tried and it didn't work, but we've run out of ideas, so we'll pray. And, and God healed him. And within, within, was it a couple of weeks or a couple of months, it was all, it was all gone. <laughs> Amazingly, they didn't become Christians. They were like, oh, well, we prayed and, you know, the magic fairy in the sky made him better, but that's okay. You know, they kind of just put it in this box over here, kind of assigned it to this category that they couldn't understand. But we kept just faithfully trying to love them and get to know them. And, and eventually she, she started coming on to church. Actually, she started coming and her husband uh, uh, found out she was coming, so oh, please don't do that. They're a cult. Don't go to that church. And then she started at home, she was watching, she was listening and watching to the, the messages from a Sunday on her computer. And her husband said, said don't do that. He said, I forbid you to watch that stuff. <laughs> Amazing, an atheist guy saying that to his wife. But eventually, she, she, she became a Christian, she became a believer. Now, her and her whole family come to church. But that, that whole process took eight years of us living there. Actually, a lot of that has happened since we've moved here. So, you know, nearly 12 years now of God slowly working in their life, of, of faithful witness, little by little. <laughs> what I'm saying is for some of you, it'll be, you won't get to see the fruit that you invest in people's lives. But you don't know what God's going to do in the future. And to be honest, most of the time, if you come in and God suddenly radically works in someone's life and a colleague gets saved... Often you'll find that there have been other people that have been faithfully loving that person over years. Often people that have been praying for them faithfully. Maybe a family member that's been praying for them day after day for years. And you get to kind of come in and get the glory. You know, you pray and they become a believer. You're like, yeah, that took like two weeks. No, it didn't. You know, God's been in work in their life for years. So we need to be a faithful witness over time. And what Peter's telling us here that it's, it's, our, it's our attitude. It's, it's not how necessarily we share the gospel through our mouths, although that's important, but it's how it affects all of our life. It's the attitude that can be really powerful, that can be really important. Okay, I need to whiz on because we're rushing short of time what's important is with all of this we need to know that as it says in this final verse for to this you've been you've been called um, it's, it's a, a calling not, not a fate as in you're, you're suffering the injustice in all sorts of different ways not just in a workplace um, it's a temporary thing and you, I don't mean to say that to belittle the suffering that you're feeling, because it might feel overwhelming and oppressive and, and horrible, but it doesn't last forever. It's not our fate, our destiny. 
Sometimes it is just a, a calling that God calls us to live through through a season for, for a time. But he has a, a better plan for us. And it can be easier for us to think as God, as a kind of, a God who's looking to, sometimes we can think of God as, you know, we can almost say things in our head like, well, I, I knew it was going to work out like that because that's what God likes to do. I knew it would be difficult because God likes to put me through the mill. You know, he likes to cause me some pain. Sometimes we can think like that as believers. And we have to remind ourselves, that's not true. He's a father that wants to do good to you. He's a father that knows what's best for you. And he calls us to the same way that Christ suffered for that to be our example of, of how we live. See, because when, when Jesus experienced injustice and suffering, he didn't retaliate. When he was beaten and struck and tortured, he didn't run away. He didn't fight back. You know, he, he didn't, when, when others pointed the finger, he took the blame. <laughs> he didn't shirk the responsibility. He went to the cross and endured this horrendous suffering and injustice for us. For us. He saw and experienced horrific evil like none of us could ever imagine. And yet he returned that with good. And now that's our example of how to live. But it's also how we come to know him. He suffered for us, for you. Let me just read these verses from Psalm 34, and then we do need to move on. It says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. Why don't, as I read this, why don't, actually, why don't we just stand together and uh, maybe just close your eyes and just let this, these words penetrate into your heart. It says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the, the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We thank you, God. We want to we want to be servants that aren't trying to prove ourselves, that aren't pointing the finger at other people, aren't trying to be ruthless and just force our way to the top. We want to be those that trust in you, Father, that sometimes even know how to suffer using you as our example, but knowing all the time that you've redeemed us that a saviour has come for us to protect us, 
to lead us, to help us. And we want to put our trust in you. This way of living that we're talking about is, Jesus, if you didn't live and die and rise again, it's all not only meaningless, but would be impossible. But when we see you as an example, when we know you as our helper living within us, all of this suddenly becomes possible through your strength. It's your grace that strengthens us. Thank you, Jesus.